welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Oh man, something about a Bible or a cocktail. That's a bizarre combination, right? Uh, I'm more comfortable with the cocktail part, actually, than the Bible, so if you have any questions. Um, as they said, my name's Stefan, and it's good to be here uh, for another week. Uh, last week was the first of three weeks, um, and before we jump into this week, I'm just going to do a quick review of last week, okay? Uh, last week, what we talked about is this idea of uh, what does it look like to be a redemptive society, and that ultimately, the vision of God for God's people is that we would be a society that uh, lives uh, on great, great mission together, uh, a society that's connected and united in love uh, with um, Jesus as, as our guide. And so this week, what I want to talk a little bit about is um, what's, what's the common cause for great devotion that a redemptive society can come around? Last week, we talked a little bit about the Clapham sect, if you remember this. It was a group of people in the UK who decided that they wanted to um, invest uh, and influence the, the spiritual and social life of Great Britain in the late 1700s. And so they did things like criminal justice reform and open schools for the poor and abolish slavery. That's what they decided was going to be their uh, great cause to get after. And uh, as I think about that, those things are very specific. It's a community of followers of Jesus who said, what do we want to do in the world? What do we want to be in the world? And how do we come together with all of our different gifts and skills to do that? Uh, and so um, because I'm not part of this community, uh, I would never sit up here and say, here's something specific I think we or you should go for. Uh, instead, I want to go a little bit higher than that, and I want to talk about, as we think about what great causes to unite around as the people uh, who follow Jesus, as the people of our redemptive society, what are some kind of like uh, parameters that it should fall under? What would these things be? Uh, and it starts with really, for me, um, ultimately, what's the vision of God for the world? And for me, the vision of God to the, for the world is really, you see it in the great commandment, and then you see it at the end of Jesus' life. Uh, towards the end of his life, before he's arrested, he's with his closest friends in, in um, the garden, and he's praying. And his friends are falling asleep. Things are getting real intense for Jesus, and he gets a little frustrated because his buddies are falling asleep. Um, but he's praying for things uh, at the end of his life as he's staring at it and saying, God, would you do this? And the one thing that he prays that I think is significant as we think about uh, God's vision for the world is oneness. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. When you think of the great commandment, it's all relational. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's about belonging to each other. Uh, I think that this is the vision of God, and, and part of the question is, what, what does oneness look like? Uh, we, when we live in a world, uh, we, have, we struggle with oneness in our own homes, right? And then you look at how divided our world is, it's like, well, realistically, what does it look like? And I think one of the challenges is we often think oneness is about agreeing. And I don't think oneness is about agreeing. If it was, I think we'd see Jesus spend a lot more time trying to get people to agree. 
And Jesus didn't seem to spend a lot of time trying to get people to agree. What Jesus did do, though, was try to help people remember that they belong. They belong to each other and they belong to God. You think of these stories, stories with lepers, with demon-possessed folks. All of these people on that day, they're on the outside, they're on the margins. And Jesus spends a significant amount of his time moving out to those margins and saying, you belong. The healing behind all of this is you belong. And then for the people at the center who feel like they belong, which are usually the, the dominant culture of the time, um, uh, Jesus kindly pushed on them to say, have you noticed how you're excluding? You're not allowing people to belong. And there's some pretty intense stories uh, of Jesus doing this. One is, you know, the way that the temple system was set up is that people would come and they would sell animals and things like that in the courtyards and, and they would do this so that they could offer these animals as sacrifices, offerings. And so they're selling pigeons and things like that. And, and if you came and you wanted to worship and you wanted to, you know, offer, uh, make an offering, uh, you could buy an animal. Well, who does that exclude? The poor. What if you don't have money? To say this made Jesus mad, I think, is a significant understatement. <laughs> he goes into the temple and he just starts throwing the tables over. It's about belonging. And we look at Jesus' life, I think we see... Um, Jesus moving towards this. My, the, the, the man who discipled me, he would always say, he just had this mantra, he would always say, he says, Stefan, if you're going to follow Jesus, it means you give up your right to reject anyone. That's what it means. And we have wrestle with this thing of belonging. Uh, Mother Teresa, I think, uh, said it really best. She said, if we don't have peace, it's because we have forgotten we belong to each other. That there's a connectedness with each other. And Jesus seemed to understand that that we were connected. And so as we think about what it means to be a redemptive society in the world, I think part of what that means is we have to look big picture and say this is about belonging. Do people feel like they belong? Do people in our home, in our churches, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our country feel like they belong? Belonging ultimately is, is um, a place where the individualism kind of falls to the wayside and we begin to rely on each other. Remember last week when we read stories of the early church in Acts, we talked about how no one had need. They shared their possessions. There was a sense of belonging to one another. And so I want to talk a little bit about belonging and some things that I've learned and experienced over the years that uh, I think are interesting uh, things to think about. I used to live in South Minneapolis. And, um, well, I still live in South Minneapolis, but I used to live about 10 blocks where I'm from now in an apartment building. And uh, the neighborhood at the time was a little rough. Uh, it's still a little rough, um, but it was a little rough. And uh, it's where we wanted to live. We wanted to, I, I love urban life. I love living in the city. I love living around diversity. And so um, we, we lived in this apartment and there was a little convenience store about a block away from our apartment. And uh, I, we would go to this convenience store if we needed something last minute. It's like, oh man, we don't have this. And so I'd run to this convenience store. Uh, so one day I walk into this little, sh this little shop, and as I'm look going through the aisles, I can feel someone watching me. 
And I'm thinking, this is interesting. <laughs> and I would cross another aisle, and this guy would cross and just look down the aisle at me. And then I'd move to another aisle, and he'd follow me and look down the aisle. And I'm trying to, like, you know, make it not look like I notice, because I'm a little uncomfortable. So I finally pick out what I'm going to buy, and I go up, and I, I pay for it. And I walk out, and the guy follows me out of the convenience store. He didn't buy anything, and he was in the store before I got there. And I'm thinking, what is going on right now? And I'm getting a little concerned. Uh, I've never seen him before. I don't know who he is. And I'm standing on the edge of the curb, and there's no crosswalk, but I got to cross the street. And I thought, I need to buy myself a little time to see if he follows me. So I'm just going to jump out in front of cars and get across, and he'll have to wait, right? So I just bolt out in front of the cars, and I get across, and he's standing at the street waiting, looking for cars, and as soon as it's clear, he comes down the sidewalk after me. And at this point, I'm, I'm just getting scared, and I'm starting to think about, okay, what are my options? At what point do I just take off running? Uh, I also, I have a lot of morbid thoughts, and so I'm thinking, like, maybe this is how it happens. <laughs> you die a block from your home um, <laughs> by some guy in a convenience store. You know, it's just like all the craziness starts going through your mind. And I can feel myself walking faster, and I can hear his footsteps behind me. And finally I hear, hey! And I'm like, ugh. Oh. So I stop, and I turn around, and I'm trying to play it cool. And I says, what's up? And he says, do you want to buy some drugs? And as soon as he said it, I thought, oh, thank God he's a drug dealer. <laughs> I know how to do this. Nancy Reagan taught us well. Just say no. Right? So, so I just, filled with relief, I said, oh, man, thanks for the offer. I'm good. <laughs> and I quickly turn around to keep walking. And as I turn around and walk away from him, this thing flashes past my radar in my head. I don't know how it got there, I don't know why it got there, but it flashed through my head and the thought was this, Stefan, this is a human being, why don't you treat him like one? And so once again, I stop, I'm like, oh man. I turn around, I say, hey man, what's your name? And he tells me his name, and I said, where are you from? He tells me the neighborhood he's from, and I knew the neighborhood. Started talking about the neighborhood a little bit. I says, you have family around? He says, yeah, and he starts telling me about his family. And before I know it, we're walking side by side up the sidewalk. And after a while, we're in front of my apartment. And uh, I said, well, this is, this is where I live, which later on my wife wasn't real crazy about. <laughs> uh, but I, I said, this is my stop. And he says to me, he says, hey, um, Things are a little tight right now. Could I borrow some money? I said, absolutely. He says, I'll pay you back. I'm ashamed to say that when he said, I'll pay you back, I thought, yeah, right. But I gave him all the cash I had. And uh, he says, thank you. And he turns to walk away. And this time, he stops. And he turns around back at me. And he says, hey. Would you, uh, would you ever be interested in grabbing a beer sometime? I know a place that has a game and we could check it out. I said, I would love that. 
And just like that, he goes, okay, thanks, bye. And he just left, right? And he was gone. And I was like, I, we, we didn't haul out the schedules. I don't know, you know how the, the getting together is going to work. So I go into my apartment and I tell my wife this thing. And I'm like, this is crazy. This thing just happened to me. And, um, and she thought it was crazy as well. A week later, we're standing out in front of my apartment. And all of a sudden, this guy crosses the street, this same man. And I had not seen him before in our neighborhood. And now I've seen him twice. And he's crossing the street. And as he crosses the street, he locks eyes with me and he sees me. And he gets a big grin on his face, and I get a big grin on my face, and he just jaywalks right through the middle of the intersection, comes right at me. And as he's coming at me, he puts his hands in his pockets, and right when he gets out to me, he takes his hands out of his pockets, and he dumps all the money that I had lent him in my hand. I couldn't believe it. And I said to him, I said, man, you're a man of your word. He says, Absolutely. He says, thank you. He turned around, left, and I never saw him again. There's something so powerful about belonging, about seeing each other in a different way and making space for each other. And something about him, it, it brought me face to face with all of my prejudice, racist, judgment, all that stuff. And yet, at the end of the day, we shared. We were able to stand in awe of a connection that's just crazy to me. Belonging carries power. I don't know uh, what he continued to do, but I kind of wonder, um, by giving him a few bucks, did he push pause on selling drugs for a day? It wasn't my intent, but it definitely was his need. And I wonder if some of the things we look at in our society that actually we would see them change if we began to see each other as belonging to one another. And like the book of Acts, we shared our possessions. I think Jesus, one of his main ways of helping people feel like they belong, he'd have dinner with them. He'd eat with them. Now, if you go to the Middle East, even today, uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Uh, if you're going to have a meal with somebody, that's a significant deal. And there's nobody even today in the Middle East that would sit down and have a meal with somebody that they were going to continue to try to make an enemy. Just won't happen. If you're going to sit down and have a meal, it means you have the intent of friendship. And this is significant for how we read the scriptures. Psalm 23, God prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we think of that, oftentimes we think, look at God showing that we're right. At least that's how I've read it. But it's actually a picture of God the reconciler. God the one who brings people together. Because they would never ever come to the table if they wanted to remain enemies. It's the God of belonging come together. And so Jesus did this all the time. And then he said stuff to his followers to do the same. He said, when you throw a party, throw up for somebody who can't repay you. You know? <laughs> he, he would eat with, uh, on one hand, sinners and tax collectors. On the other hand, uh, the religious folks of the day. He ate with everybody. It's really fascinating to me. And so the intent behind all of this for Jesus would be, we're going to be friends. They're going to know they belong. And that we belong to each other. Uh, <clears throat> several years ago now, I was living in Detroit, Michigan, and 
uh, I was hanging out with some friends. I spent a lot of time on the streets in Detroit, and I was hanging out with some friends, and I asked them, Christmas was coming up. I said, hey, are you going to have a Christmas meal anywhere? And they said, nah. I said, well, what are you going to do? They said, well, we don't know. And I knew these guys pretty well, and I said, well, what, you know, what if we just had a, had a dinner together? They said, that'd be great. I said, I don't have anything going um, on Christmas Day, and so my wife and I, we, you know, let's just have a little gathering. And I said, do you have any friends that may want to join us? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, well, let's, let's make a plan here. So uh, I called a friend. I said, hey, we want to do a little dinner, and there may be some folks coming that want to join us. Uh, would you sponsor it? And a friend of mine says, yeah, I'll give you 1000 bucks." I called another friend who's a chef. I said, hey, we're going to have this little you know, Christmas dinner. Um, would you be interested in cooking for it? He said, absolutely. And then somebody was talking to a bakery that cooks the fancy bread. What do you call those bakeries? I don't know. It's fancy bread. <laughs> and, and the bakery heard about what we're doing. They said, we'll supply all the bread. We'll give you all the bread. And then I called the church, some buddies of mine that were pastors of a church. I said, hey, do you have any space in your church that we could have a little dinner on Christmas Day because we're going to have some dinner with some friends? They said, absolutely. And then my, the group of friends I was with, I said, we need a marketing team. <laughs> I, said, I said, let's make some flyers. They said, super. So they made flyers. And I said, now you guys are, I'll, I'll be in charge of getting all the, the, the food and everything that are ready to go. You need to bring the people. And they said, great, we got it. And so we left, and I flew out of town. I was, at the time, leading worship at the Upper Room in, uh, in Minneapolis. And we would do a Christmas Eve service at midnight. And we still do. But, so we did a midnight service, and so I flew out early the next morning to get back to Detroit. And as soon as I got into Detroit, my wife picked me up. And we went to my friend's house, who was the chef, and we started loading up all this food. And I'm like, good grief, there's a ton of food. He's like, man, a thousand bucks gets you a long ways, you know? And then we, we, we got the food from the bakery, the, the fancy bread. And it was like bags and bags of fancy bread, you know? Uh, so we pull up to this church, and I'll never forget it. We pull up along the side and park along the curb. And I'm like, what in the world? The people are lined up down the block. And my buddy Dave was in charge of marketing. And he's standing in the front. I said, Dave, where did all these people come from? He says, the whole shelter came. I said, well, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to have enough food. He says, ah, we'll be fine. I'm like, all right. There was one guy there, his name was Mark, and Mark lived in his van he wasn't from the shelter. I heard a story later on from Mark. Mark had one of his flyers, and in the morning, the police came up to his van. They knock on his window. They said, hey, Mark, you know, because everybody knew the homeless folks. <laughs> he said, you need to get out of here. You don't belong here. And Mark got mad, and he took our flyer, and he got out of the van, and he slammed it down on the hood, and he says, yes, I do belong here. And the cops turned around and walked away. Folks started coming in, and we were trying to get the food set up. And the plan was, for those of us that were throwing the party, we would serve everybody, but we couldn't keep up. Way too many people. And so before you know it, without anybody asking, all these folks started jumping behind the serving line. And now you could no longer tell who was serving who. It was just everybody serving each other. The shelter didn't open till nine and it's early afternoon and so we sat there and we talked and laughed and told stories for six hours. 
When we got done, everybody headed back to the shelter. And we had a lot of the fancy bread left over. They got back to the shelter that night, and the next day I talked to my buddy Dave. I said, hey, Dave, what happened when you got back to the shelter? He says, oh, you're not going to believe it. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, usually at night the shelter is kind of intense. Now, I think you got a lot of mental illness and trauma and chronic stress. This is an intense environment. And he says, so every night people get kicked out, there's fighting, and there's just a lot of stuff that happens. He said, but it didn't happen on Christmas. I said, why? He says, because everybody took their fancy bread and just sat in circles together and shared and broke bread together. And he said it was a completely different experience. This is what belonging does. That as we deal with our anger and our isolation and our alienation, we can sit and experience something that's mutual not something where somebody's the service provider and the service recipient, but something that actually is far more mutual. And I think it's the vision of God. It's oneness. Now, in some of these stories that we read in the scriptures, I think it's pretty intense, um, the vulnerability of the folks on the margin to participate. There's this story in the, in the Gospels that um, Jesus is going to a house um, to have dinner with a man named Simon, and there's other folks there, and they're reclining at the table, which means they're kind of laying on one side and their feet are towards the outside. And this woman, who they just called was, had a lot of sin in her life. Can you imagine being labeled that? Um, she comes and she sits down in the middle of this thing and she just starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And people look at this story and, and, you know, think about the significance of Jesus welcoming this woman, and the, and the folks are mad. They're like, if Jesus had any idea who this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And when I read the story, I think, good grief, what kind of courage did that woman have? Can you imagine somebody walking into that environment and doing that? What an incredible, incredible woman. And you see this. I think most of our churches want to be a place of belonging. But I think we'd be surprised at how much courage it would take for some people to walk through these doors. To feel like if anybody knew, there is no way they would let me here. I think we would be surprised at how much courage people are walking into our communities every week. As I said last week, I run an organization that builds relationships around kids, and we work in schools, and um, we we have these students, and our students are kind of like referred to us uh, by teachers based on a bunch of different factors. And we'll have students in our in our program that um, they're kind of like uh, they they struggle navigating the classroom. And it ends up being kind of disruptive, and they just have a hard time knowing how to navigate all that. And they're loud and kind of, you know, it's middle school students, so sometimes it comes off aggressive. But then we have other students that are the opposite side of the spectrum, and they sit there quietly and nobody knows their name. And they're isolated, and so um, we put mentors in the lives of this whole spectrum of students. And at the end of every year, we do a thing called Showcase. 
And it's where a student gets up in front of uh, their peers and they basically, you know, do something that they want their peers to know that they're passionate about. And we had this one girl named Serena. And Serena was on the side of the spectrum that nobody really knew her name. She's quiet. Most of the kids ignored her. Uh, and very, very shy. And Serena got the idea that for her showcase, she wanted to sing a solo in front of the group. When I heard about the idea, I thought, this is a terrible idea. Don't do this. But Serena's mentor was going into music therapy. And so Serena's mentor understood the power that music has to help a person heal. So Serena's mentor's all in. She's like, no, I think she's got to do it. And so it's like, okay. <laughs> so, Picture this room, there's 40 people in the room, 20 students, 20 mentors. Um, the students are kind of all over the place. It's kind of crazy. They can come off uh, insensitive sometimes. And we're all watching each other's showcase. And it's time for Serena to get up and sing her solo. And the mentor agrees to sing it with her, OK? And I'm standing in the back, and I am freaking out. I mean, outside, I'm like, this is so great. Inside, I'm scared to death. Because I'm like, oh, please don't somebody say something stupid and crush this poor girl. But I don't have any power in this situation. So Serena starts to sing. And it just so happened we had a little bit of a camera there to videotape this. So check this out. How to be brave. That's what she's singing about. Whew. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. There was something about the vulnerability and the courage and the bravery of Serena that everybody recognized. And nobody moved. Boys that I hadn't seen sit still for a year <laughs> aren't moving. Did you notice what the mentor was doing? The mentor did not take her eyes off Serena once. The whole thing for her was about Serena. You can do amazing things if you've got a champion who won't take their eyes off you. Amazing things. She got done, and the room just erupted, cheering and screaming and clapping and hollering, and immediately belonging belonging. And then they said, encore, no joke, they did it again. And I was just as nervous the second time as the first. <laughs> but just like that belonging, but it takes the courage and the vulnerability of somebody. That it isn't just the person who has to stop and say, what's your name? But it's the courage of the person who says, this is my name. Belonging works both ways. And we need to recognize that. A few years ago, I was at a men's retreat in Michigan. And uh, 
it was all these Christian men, and my mentor was the friend of the imam, the largest mosque in America. And when the imam heard about our retreat to go and talk about Jesus for a weekend, he said, I think my best friend wants to go, who's also Muslim. And sure enough, he wanted to go. His name was Eid. And so Eid drives up like four hours to this retreat, this camp, and you got a few hundred Christian men, and then Eid, this Muslim man. And I was fascinated by it. I'm like, what kind of guy does this? Again, the courage. And for me, I'd spent my entire life around Christian men. I was like, I know that deal. I want to know why this guy's here. And so I followed Eid around. I just stalked that guy for an entire weekend. Everywhere he went, I went. The only place I didn't go is in the middle of sessions, he would go up and go get up and go pray, you know, because that's what Muslims do. He's very devout, and then he would come back and join in everything. It was this amazing thing, and one night we're sitting at the fire and uh, just le- listening to Eid talk about the world and about Islam and, and how he sees things, and uh, there's a Christian man sitting next to him, and the Christian man looks at Eid and he says, hey, who do you pray to? And I thought, oh boy. And Eid very gently and politely says, Allah. And the Christian man looks at him and says, well, that's where we're different because I pray to God. And Eid says, yeah, Allah. And the Christian man says, no, 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 you don't get it. I pray to God. And Eid says, I know, Allah. What the Christian man didn't understand was that Allah was the Arabic word for God. And he, he did not bother to explain it. So the Christian man just got more and more upset. He got really mad. And he's just sitting there trying to, he's like, yeah, that's who I pray to, Allah. Before you know it, the Christian man is leaning out of his chair. He's like, I pray to God. And he's getting really aggressive with Eid. And finally, Eid stands up and he says, brother, calm down. I'm sorry. He says, I didn't mean to upset you. The Christian man calmed down and he sat back in his seat and Eid sat back in his, in his seat. And then Eid turned to him and says, can I ask you a question? And Eid says, yeah. Or the Christian man says, yeah. And Eid says, are you glad I'm here? Brilliant. I'm convinced we're all living with that question. That ultimately, if we were honest, anywhere we go, are we wondering, are they glad I'm here? What if I think different? What if I look different? What if I come from a different culture? What if I come from a different language? Is my being here something that they would celebrate? The Christian man's response to Eid was, I don't know. I don't know. I think part of the radical nature of God's vision of oneness is we have to really wrestle with who would it be hard for us to say you belong? Who could walk through those doors this morning and make everybody really uncomfortable? And rather than trying to get them to agree, could we make them feel like they're home? 
in our workplaces, in our schools, in our jobs, all of these places. We live in a culture of isolation and alienation. People are alone. I think the greatest cause the American church could take up together is to say, can we just start with belonging? That people feel like they have value in their life and that I belong to them and they belong to me. It isn't easy because we have to wrestle with all of our stuff, our prejudice, the things we judge, race, culture, gender, you name it. It's all there. I heard somebody recently say, we are a product of our history, but we don't need to be participants. <laughs> and so for many of us, we're coming from a place of, of, uh, of, of privilege, a place where, um, to be honest, I don't go into very, very many environments and don't feel like I belong. That's part of what it means to be a white man, is I can go into almost anywhere and have a sense that I feel like I can be there. And I've spent the last 15 years of my adult life intentionally putting myself into positions where I wouldn't feel that way. That I had to feel like a guest. That I had to rely on somebody else's grace to say, welcome, you belong. It's led me to neighborhoods that I don't live in. It's led me to countries uh, that Americans are scared to go. Because I need to recognize both my privilege and my abilities to say you belong. And those two things are connected for us. So the question of are you glad I'm here <laughs> is a question I think we need to wrestle with. One of my heroes is Mr. Rogers. He says this, love is in a state of perfect caring. It is an active noun-like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. Mr. Rogers was a master of this. And so what um, I think we're invited into is the struggle. As we close, I'm, I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna do a bit of a reflection exercise. <clears throat> I'm gonna ask you uh, a series of questions, three questions. Uh, and you're gonna give it time to, talk, time to think and reflect and then the, the, the band is gonna sing a chorus and we can join in with them. So we're just gonna do, take a little bit of time to reflect on some of this uh, ourselves. And the, the, the first question that I want you to think about is, who is it that if they walked through the doors of Awakened Church, you would have a hard time saying welcome? Think specifically, who is that that you would have a hard time saying welcome here? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.